Hello and welcome to Lessons My Patients Taught Me. This is Dr. Elliot Davidson, family doctor, recording from beautiful Akron, Ohio. Not too many places nicer than Ohio in the early fall. In this podcast, we talk about lessons that I've learned from my patients over my 38 years in practice. Today, I have another great guest with me, Dr. Phil Toll. Many of you know I have personally experienced heart disease, but I have not really discussed all my orthopedic complaints. Along the way, I have been the recipient of some fabulous treatment by some very knowledgeable physical therapists. Shout out to Shelly at Stowe Health and Wellness. Lately, I've been working with Dr. Phil Toll, who's incredibly knowledgeable about the back and the physical therapy treatment of back pain, among many other topics. He has been extremely helpful to me in the care of my back. This episode continues the practice of an interdisciplinary podcast because Phil has some very valuable lessons to teach us as therapists approach problems and solutions differently sometimes than other kinds of practitioners. Let me tell you a little bit about Phil. Dr. Toll received his Doctor of Physical Therapy at State University of New York at Buffalo and did his orthopedic residency and fellowship at the Institute of Therapeutic Sciences in Livonia, Michigan. Dr. Toll has extensive certifications and is presently licensed in the state of Ohio. He is also the former program director, Cleveland Clinic Orthopedic Physical Therapy Residency Program. He has extensive teaching experience and he has done many presentations and publications. He remains very active in the practice of physical therapy and is presently the clinical rehab manager at Cleveland Clinic Akron General Health and Wellness Center in Bath, Ohio. Phil, I'm excited to have you. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate you coming out to the Wellness Center in Bath and bringing out your uh, toys for me. (laughs) There you go. Uh, So, first of all, tell me a little bit about yourself and what drew you to physical therapy as a career. Sure. Well, um, personally, you know, uh, I was a patient first, and I think that's how a lot of uh, physical therapists, but probably all clinicians, really get into their field is by being a a patient first. Um, So, I started... um, probably early on um, in the PT field, uh, being a patient when I was 16 years old. Um, I was pretty active growing up. Uh, I played outside. I was, you know, any sport, I loved playing. But my sophomore year, uh, playing football, I was punting, and there was a snap that went over my head, and you dive down to try to gather up the ball, and that's when multiple people kind of landed on me, and I injured my shoulder. And at that time, I didn't really know what it was, but I think the care at that point was put it in a sling for a few weeks, and when the pain goes away, you can get back into the game. Uh, well, the football season ended, and then I started playing basketball and uh, for, uh, I think, a JV at that time. And uh, while coming down from a rebound, I felt my shoulder, something happened. Um, I learned later that it dislocated. Oh, my. Um, and so that prompted me to go in to see an orthopedic surgeon, and he kind of explained what was going on, and he said, well, you should try therapy. I don't think it's going to work, but if this uh, happens again, you'll need surgery. Uh, and he was right. You know, I, I tried therapy, uh, and while successful, when I went to my next sport, which was pole vaulting, I dislocated again and ended up having to have surgery and then got to see therapy again for the, the second round for the, the post-operative rehab. You were brave, pole vaulting. That's uh, that's a brave sport. I, I wish I could tell you it was like what you see on the Olympics, but it was really just you know using a stiff pole to go as high as I can and just flail my body over oh my. the bar. Okay. But yeah. Yeah. But um, that's kind of how I got introduced uh, to therapy, and I realized that interested me. I could 
um, help people, and I could do it in a way that allowed people to move and, and allowed me to kind of use what was already a little bit natural to me was just this sense of body awareness. And, and so this idea of helping people physically get better really attracted me to that. So um, I ended up uh, volunteering at the same clinic that uh, I did my therapy at, and I volunteered there so much they decided to hire me on as an aide, and it was a different time back then. Uh, back then as an aide, they would give me a patient's sheet of exercises and tell me to just run them through their exercises. So I was kind of doing therapy at a, at a pretty early stage. So I kind of knew what I was getting into as I started PT school. I see. Yeah. Um, but, you know, from uh, PT school, um, I, I went to school at University of Buffalo, and then I moved to Ohio. Um, and, and when I got there, I realized... Um, there were areas that I wish I was doing better in. Um, I worked in a clinic and I would see that often when a patient was getting better, they, they just said, you know, we're not sure what else we can do. You should go back and see your physician. Um, and I wanted to see if I could lessen how often I needed to refer back. So that prompted me to uh, do a residency and, and fellowship, which I think just helped build my confidence and my skills even, even further. Okay, well, uh, let's get into it. You know, I, I admit it, I have low back pain, like a lot of people. Uh, I noticed that you approach back pain somewhat differently, doing a very careful and complete exam of the back. Uh, tell me what you're looking for in the history and the physical exam of the back. Sure. Um, you know, I think like many clinicians, you know, I, I really have come to value more the, the history and what the patient says about their pain. I think that, that helps me. I think as I've seen more patients, I've started to um, develop patterns where you hear patients say certain things and it starts to send me down um, a path for my differential diagnosis. Um, you know, for me, it's nice to know if the patient can identify what the mechanism of, of pain was that, that started all of their symptoms, uh, but that doesn't happen as often. Um, I, I feel like for me, most of my patients tend to just have their pain that kind of starts out of nowhere, and maybe that's just based on the, the clinic I'm in, um, but we don't see too many traumatic uh, injuries. For the most part, these are um, everyday folks who, you know, started to feel pain when they woke up that morning and can't really figure out what it is that, that started that. So, um, I found that the better history taking I can do can help me identify maybe things that they're not aware of, um, and so I think a you know maybe a, a straightforward example of using the history would be let's say someone has low back pain and let's say it's a younger person and they're explaining that uh, their back pain hurts when they sit and it seems to go down into their leg and they notice if they cough or they sneeze, it seems to aggravate their symptoms. But maybe they have found that uh, when they lay down on their stomach, it seemed to ease it. And so while they were down on their stomach, they realized, oh, I'm just gonna watch TV while I'm down here. And that seemed to help their pain even more. To me, that starts to make me think that this is someone who has discogenic back pain and they might be someone who responds favorably to repeated movements, um, kind of the, the McKenzie approach that I think... The makes, extension. The extensions, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, which I think a lot of people are familiar with. Um, and the nice part is, if done appropriately and quickly, that can be a really uh, quick resolution to their, their, their symptoms. Um, 
So yeah, I, I do think for me, the more detailed we can be, the, the better we can identify what their problem is and then really drill down at a, at a faster pace, hopefully. Okay, well then, how about on physical exam? What, what are you looking for? Sure. So for the physical exam, I, I tend to, again, try to be as detailed as possible. And this is something that I, I can credit a lot of my mentors for. Um, you know, a phrase that I would hear, which is, you know, what's the cause of the cause? So if someone has uh, low back pain, it's one thing to just figure out uh, how their pain is impacting their life and what makes their symptoms better or worse. But um, I would kind of train to look a little bit deeper. So, you know, what could be this, the first, the, the first impairment that maybe caused this? So um, maybe an example that we'll see often is a patient who sent us with a diagnosis of lumbar stenosis. They may report that they get uh, relief from symptoms with sitting, with flexing forward, and aggravating symptoms with walking and uh, standing for long periods of time. Um, and that might be good enough to start to try to help them alleviate their symptoms. But then if we drill down and maybe look to other areas that could be dysfunctional, so maybe in this lumbar stenosis patient, um, they have reduced hip flexor flexibility. Well, maybe that hip flexor flexibility is limiting them because it's drawing their spine into extension and standing positions, and they might get better resolution of symptoms if uh, we address that flexibility. So now we don't have something that is pulling them into extension and creating some nerve irritation. Um, we can essentially hit a, a, a part of this problem from a, a different direction, um, even though repeated flexion might still be part of their program and give them instant relief, if we're looking for long-term relief, that might be one example of how we kind of look outside the box. Um, you know, a lot of my, my training has used a lot of manual therapy. So in addition to kind of standard physical exam, I'll also look a little bit more at segmental movement. Um, I would say a lot of my training was a little bit of a, a hybrid of you know, physical therapy with some osteopathic kind of undertones. So looking at how different segments tend to um, become stiff or become hypermobile are also things that I look at. So really, instead of just looking at the spine grossly, I'll try my best to figure out, is there specific segments that maybe aren't moving as well as they should? Or are they moving more than they should? So a lot of uh, when it comes to the spine, it's kind of balancing the system, you know, making sure we have adequate mobility and stability. That's very interesting. So uh, what would you say are some of the common myths or misunderstandings about low back pain? Because I'm sure there are many. Yeah, I think especially when we deal with, um, you know, this problem so often throughout the day, um, I think one, and this is more driven by patients, a lot of patients feel that they, they shouldn't be receiving any kind of treatment until imaging has been done. Um, and I think, you know, that can sometimes be needed, um, especially in traumatic instances or when um, someone maybe has radicular symptoms. Um, but if it's just axial low back pain, um, I think Imaging isn't always needed, and I, I, and I don't think this um, has to be specific to just the spine. I think imaging may not always be um, a first line of uh, assessment, and I think a lot of it's because we've seen data come out that shows 
it is normal to have degenerative findings. It's normal to have discogenic, uh, you know, degeneration, uh, bulging, herniations in asymptomatic populations. And um, this is information I, I share with patients because I, I want to also try to reassure them and let them know that um, it's not uh, a death sentence if they get an x-ray done of their spine and they see that there's degeneration, um, that they can still get to a point where they're very comfortable or, or symptom-free. Um, and so I think that's one myth that a lot of patients have is that they, they need to see what's wrong. Um, when really, I think we've learned that it's a, a combination of the clinical presentation with imaging and, and correlating the two. So I think that's, that's a big one. Yeah, what I found is patients think that somehow the MRI is going to be uh, make the decision of what to do next. And a lot of times that isn't true. Uh, that, uh, and I'll often not get an MRI or not encourage an MRI unless they're, they're ready to have surgery or unless that we're trying to decide on surgery or not because we're going to go with physical therapy or other conservative measures first anyway, no matter what the MRI shows, because we're not going to rush into surgery unless they're having so-called red flag symptoms. Right. Yeah, and that's hard, though. I think for patients, you know, you, you watch pro sports and you see your favorite athlete go down, and the first thing they get is an MRI, so I think patients want that high-level care. <laughs> yes. Uh, so it is hard sometimes to, to uh, discourage them. A lot of insurance companies won't pay for an MRI initially without, without some therapy, which is kind of annoying to patients that they don't, they don't want their care dictated by the insurance company. But oftentimes it makes sense because a lot of people will get better with conservative measures and no, won't need uh, anything more invasive. Yeah, we hear that a lot. Patients uh, a little upset that uh, my doctor sent me here. You know, I can't can't get an MRI or an X-ray until um, here for six weeks. And I, I've kind of evolved in how I handle that question now. I, I tend to just say, well, you know what? Let's at least try to get you feeling a little bit better, and let's get you through these visits. And then, if we need the MRI, we can. And often they end up not needing it and they, they feel better before that the, their six weeks is up. So um, I can see why insurance companies do it. It's a way to save them money, but I, I, I think it, it'll take still some time for patients to understand that. Um, another thing that I think we see that can be another myth is that rest is good for the, the back. And um, I, I think we've started to move away from this idea that when you hurt your back, you need to have bed rest or, or be in traction for days or however long. Um, I think we probably as a society have a, a big fear of back pain and we tend to um, be more worrisome about that. And I think if, if we were to treat backs just like we would an ankle sprain, we would rest it for a short period of time, but then an ankle, eventually you'll start to put a little bit of weight on it and see what it feels like. And then you start to walk a little bit. And then at some point you start to jog and but I feel like with back pain, there's more um, fear to get back to that. So um, that's one thing we encourage patients to do is try to actively move through this phase of discomfort because essentially um, that ends up really pushing them through that acute phase faster. Um, and then we don't have some of the detrimental effects of weakness and stiffness that might be present after this period of rest that maybe they gave themselves. Yeah, what I've noticed uh, with physical therapy that I've had, and I've had quite a bit of it, is that I went into initially thinking, oh, there's going to be massage, ultrasound, 
um, you know, heat, other kinds of techniques like that. And a lot of it has been exercises uh, to get stronger or flexibility, stretching, uh, and more active uh, movement. And I've been surprised at how well that's worked in a lot of cases. Yeah, and it's interesting when we see patients who have had therapy maybe 15, 20 years ago compared to now, and and the the practice of physical therapy has really changed. And I I think as we've tried to do more research within the the PT profession, we're starting to see some of those things like e-stim and ultrasound and, and, you know, hot packs might be a temporary feel-good, but then there's really no long-term resolution of symptoms. Um, So we just tend to get right to it, start to get things uh, moving that will give them better relief of pain versus just the feel good. Not to say that, you know, for the occasional patient, we wouldn't try those things just to um, help them in the moment, but I think those aren't our long-term strategies. Um, another uh, myth, I think, when it comes to low back pain, and we, we hear this often too, is sometimes a patient will feel like something is out of alignment or, or out of place. And um, I, I think we can take some of the blame in that. Uh, years ago, I think that was our best explanation when you know someone was having back pain or spine pain was that something was out of alignment or, or stuck. Um, and, and I'm as guilty as anyone because a lot of that was my roots. You know, um, with my manual therapy training, we looked for segments that were out of alignment or, or stuck in a flexed or extended position. Uh, but I think really as we've evolved and our imaging has come around, um, we can really see that there's really probably no such thing as an alignment problem uh, if there hasn't been some kind of trauma uh, or some kind of uh, really serious event that caused the spine to be subluxed or dislocated. Um, the, I think probably what the patient feels when they feel like something is out of alignment is uh, they have pain, and our body's response to pain is to um, tighten up or become hypertonic locally. And so they might feel one side of their spine, spine feels tight, uh, where the other side feels normal, and it gives us this sensation of something being out. Um, and so uh, I, I try to explain that to patients a little bit as best I can. I, I try not to o- overdo the point because sometimes you'll um, be going against someone who maybe has had uh, treatment for their spine that involved getting regular alignments, uh, you know, regularly. And that's, a, I think, a hard thing to change their mind on. But I tried to, again, just de-emphasize this, this um idea that something is mechanically seriously wrong. So if I think about a a car, you know, if my car's out of alignment, I I want that fixed as soon as possible. Um, But but yeah, I I think that's one big misconception. I see. I could think of a few cases where that might be true. For instance, somebody who has a leg length discrepancy, you know, where one leg is longer than the other, and that might throw their pelvis off, which might cause a little bit of you know, scoliosis in their spine, so their head isn't tilted to one side or another. Do you see things like that? Yeah. I think when there's a structural, uh, like a scoliosis or a true bony leg length, um, then I think then there's, a, I, I think, a case to be made for maybe something looks a little off. Um, I think what we see more often are the patients who radiographs look good, um, even leg length can look good and they still feel out of alignment, but some of my training involved looking at leg length, and I think what we probably believe that happens 
most likely when someone does seem to have a leg length discrepancy is that there's hypertonicity somewhere up high and that is causing a, a, a visual shortening or lengthening of that limb. Because, um, and I saw this many times when I was doing my residency training, we would see someone who has a leg-leg discrepancy, we would do a muscle energy technique or a joint mobilization or even soft tissue, and then you check their leg length and it immediately changes. Wow, so they wouldn't need any kind of uh, extra you know, hide on one shoe or anything. No, yeah, no. Um, and so that that's where I think um, we just have to be very careful about telling patients alignment issues. Um, you know, when I do see something that is a little off, I sometimes even debate if I even mention it to the patient because I don't want them to over fixate on it. Um, and the research really says it's got to be pretty significant, you know, two centimeters or two and a half centimeters before it's, you know, a pretty... Um, statistical and, a, and a, a observable difference. But again, my, my bias training one, I was taught to look for a leg length that was you know, an eighth of an inch difference. And oh, oh, no, it's like, no. That won't, you, know, you won't see much yeah. of that, hopefully, yeah. Okay. And that's what I explained to our, our students and residents, too. I said, you know, we've got to acknowledge that there's some error when we look at these things, too. You know, I'm looking at their feet from up above. You know, I, I'm not very good at hanging up a, a picture without a level, <laughs> let alone looking down at my thumb. So um, I think there's a lot of uh, error and reliability issues, too. But I think um, the reason probably I'm a little bit more sensitive to the alignment piece, too, is um, as I've kind of gained more experience, I've seen more chronic pain patients. And I, I see a lot of patients who have a lot of fear and a lot of avoidance for activities. And, you know, when they start to fear that they can't do things because they're out of alignment, um, it, you know, I, I worry if that's another barrier. So that's something we recommend to students and, and PT residents now, which is try not to exert additional fears into someone if you can by by telling them that something looks a little off or there's an alignment issue. I think we can tell them that something looks stiff because I think that seems to be uh, handled better by the patient than something's out of alignment. Yeah. Uh, I did another podcast on the power of our words yeah. and you can see how, you know, planting that kind of idea into their head uh, can, you know, can, can set them up for more difficulty down the line. You want to actually set them up for success, for getting better uh, and not the other way around. Yeah, I, I think I, I wish um, there were more studies that looked at that. I'm sure they're out there. There's there's studies for everything, but um, I, I wonder if that's not something maybe we could continue to look further into for our students and residents is how to how to communicate with patients in a way that you know makes them uh, feel empowered and makes them not fearful to treat themselves. Good point. Uh, I was wondering, you know, what uh, would you like people to know about physical therapy? We've got into some of these things, uh, but what are some other things that you want people to know about physical therapy that you think they may not fully appreciate? Yeah, I, I would, I, I would like people to to know or to understand that, you know, every uh, individual patient we see gets individualized care. Um, I, I would hope that uh, most clinicians don't have a, a, cook, a cookbook or a cookie cutter type uh, way of treating something. Uh, in reality, all patients are completely individual and really no uh, program should 
be similar exactly to another person. And while we may see patients with uh, medical diagnoses, rarely do the treatments for that medical diagnosis always seem to match. So, um, which is kind of a, a joke in our world. We, we say there's nothing worse than, you know, it's a holiday gathering and someone asks you, oh, my back hurts. How do I get that better? <laughs> right. To me, it's like asking, you know, physician, like, I have chest pain. What's wrong with me? You know, there's so many different things it could be. Um, or how do I get it better? You know, there's so much involved in figuring out all of the nuances. So that, that happens to you, too. Yeah. <laughs> That's, yeah, we should just um, have medical professional Thanksgivings. That way we can avoid those questions. It'll still happen. That's true. Yeah, we'll probably ask each other our own specialties. Um, but, you know, I think... Um, I think another thing that I wish more people knew were how the the PT profession has uh, changed and how we we train ourselves. You know, I, um, you know, I was one of the earlier um, classes, you know, at, at my school to have the the DPT, the Doctor of Physical Therapy, and I think it's. Um, kind of been a, a reflection of the demand that I think is needed in healthcare. You know, we, we need to make sure that we're well-trained. So, um, you know, now all PTs have to get doctorate-level training. Um, there's no more master's programs. Um, optional still is for PTs to do residencies and, and fellowships, um, and those are, I, I think, similar in a way to uh, physicians in that um, you know, there's your specialty, and then your fellowship is the subspecialty. Um, and so I, I, I think sometimes patients don't realize that it takes that person that they're seeing, you know, six, seven more years uh, of education uh, to get to that point to be their PT. Um, and then if they chose to advance their skills further, well, then that could be another, you know, year or two residency, another year or two fellowship. Um, again, I think in PT, that's all uh, optional right now. But for those uh, motivated to do that, those, those options are out there. Are there any areas of the body that are better treated with physical therapy or more challenging to treat with physical therapy? I, I, to me, I think that the spine is, is one of the more challenging areas. Uh, but if we had to get into the weeds of it, probably the, the sacroiliac area. Um, the, the reality of it is I think we still just don't know enough about that area. Um, you can split a room in half. You know, some people will tell you that symptoms don't come from the SI joint. Uh, other people in the room will be treating and assessing the SI joint for every single pain, too. So, um, unfortunately, it's an area that we don't have a good, great way to clinically diagnose. And then even our uh, medical diagnosis of it is, is still questionable. You know, MRI, radiographs don't really seem to tell us when someone's SI joint is hurting. Um, it kind of comes back to, you know, there's uh, some limitations with imaging, um, and that's, that's an area that I think suffers from that as well. Um, what about, you know, shoulders, hips, knees? Uh, are, are all those very amenable uh, in your view? Yeah, I, I think, you know, so many things, especially if addressed sooner than later, tend to, tend to do pretty well. Um, we probably see more rotator cuff pathology um, as we get older. Um, 
thankfully, we've seen that a lot of those, again, seem to respond well to conservative therapy. You know, loading the rotator cuff ups does seem to be really successful for uh, tendinopathies and partial tears. Um, now, if it's a, a significant tear, that's where maybe um, this surgery is, is a potentially a better uh, option. Um, but then again, there's some patients who have very large tears that um, maybe medically aren't suitable for ther- uh, surgery or just don't want to have surgery, and so we just we, we do the best we can. Um, but I think really um, a lot of the extremities, there, there tends to be a little bit better success with than spine, and I, I think that could be a a whole other, you know, podcast. Why why is spine pain so difficult to manage? But well, you're kind of attracted to that, maybe because it's challenging. Yeah, I, I, I when I first started, I used to be really into sports rehab and, and treating patients who had ACL reconstructions, and I did enjoy that. But I found um, as I went through residency and fellowship training. Um, you start to get it's it's a it's a nice thing, but it's a, a little bit of a I don't say a curse or a burden too. But um, I think as you start to gain more skills and get better at what you do, um, you tend to start to see harder patients. And not to say that there aren't challenges with ACL reconstruction patients, but um, I, I think you know what the problem is and you know how to to get them to that point where someone who comes in with spine pain and they don't know how it happened and they've got a lot of fear and anxiety, um, those to me are, are, are bigger puzzles to try to figure out. Sure, sure. Uh, so what are some lessons that you've learned from your patients over the years? I think, and we kind of touched on this a little bit, you know, I think getting the, the whole story from the patient. Um, I think it's very easy for, for me to forget sometimes you know, when you've got a, a day where you're seeing new patients and you've got to do progress reports on, on the ones that aren't new and, you know, there's one patient after the next, it's very easy to just try to figure out what does this screen in front of me need to be clicked so I can get to the next thing. Um, but to me, I, I do feel like it's very important to try to get the whole story. Um, you know, there was a, a time when I was treating a, a, a woman, she'd come to me with some pain. And one type of pain that, uh, again, we're seeing more and more of is this you know, chronic pain. And one of the types of treatment that we do for chronic pain is pain neuroscience education. It's kind of uh, a method of uh, explaining to your patients the biology of pain to get them to understand it and take some of the fear away, but then kind of explaining to them um, why their pain is still there. Um, and so after hearing her story, or at least what I thought was enough of her story to start to get into the treatment that very first day, um, I started to explain to her what was going on, where, what her pain was like. And I realized, um, because she didn't come back that I probably didn't spend enough time to, to hear her full story, to get to know her, to gain that trust. So I think from a scholarly perspective, it's good to know the whole story so we don't miss anything. But I think when we start to get to points in our care where we need to tell that person something that's hard to hear or make a recommendation that isn't easy to talk about, if we don't have that trust, it's it's not going to go over well. So um, I, I've found that uh, to be something uh, very valuable. So even though I'm running behind or I've got 
notes piling up, I still want to let that patient talk, and I try really hard not to interrupt them as, as best I can. True. They don't trust you. They're not going to listen. Yeah. Yeah. So building that trust uh, for, for all practitioners is important. The other thing that I think um, I've learned, and this has been from multiple patients, is um, I think the value of staying active as we age. Um, I think we, I've seen many, many patients, and the patients who tend to stay active seem to just get better easier, you know? And I think, uh, you know, my one hypothesis that I've talked to other uh, PTs about is, you know, I wonder if you're someone who's been active for a long time, you're used to you know, lifting in the gym or running or playing tennis, you, you strain something, well, you kind of take it easy for a little bit, you understand that pain, and then you start to slowly get back into it. And I think that's probably a natural course for anyone who's been active for a lot of years. You're used to soreness. You're used to pains. And sometimes there's pains that you push through. But then I'll, I, you know, I've seen over the years patients who didn't really play sports, who weren't active, and then they get hurt, and it really freaks them out. And they've never felt this before. And so it ends up being a challenge because we have to try to get them to understand what's a good pain and what's not a good pain. So an example is uh, there's times where we're trying to teach someone just how to stretch. And just that sensation of a muscle stretching, they say, ooh, that hurts. But then we have to kind of you know, carefully guide them that, no, this is, this is actually what we want. This is what we're targeting for. Where an athlete might say, ooh, that's a good deep stretch. It hurts. I like it. You know, so there's a difference between the two. Um, but... You know, I, I, I kind of think about people who are active. They also tend not to need us as much either. <laughs> so we're probably just you don't not see them, them as often. Yeah. 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 But that's good advice. You know, stay active in, in a variety of ways, your mind, your body. Uh, and, you know, you're, you're less likely to have more problems if you stay active that way. Yeah, I think so. You know, if I, I've seen, you know, throughout you know, the whole spectrum of ages and um, I've seen some pretty unbelievable athletes in their 90s and it's amazing because it doesn't take me very many visits before eventually they're out on their own or they tell me like okay i've got what i need awesome yeah yeah um so one of the things i i know is difficult is getting patients to do their exercises that's got to be a challenge what are some ways you found uh that you can effectively motivate people yeah you're you're right that is that is a challenge and i've you know i've heard it's hard to even just take get people to take their medication, you know, which is just swallowing a, a pill, let alone actually set aside time and do exercises. Um, one thing that I found helpful is um, I try to reduce the, the burden of how much I give them. Um, you know, some patients can do more, but I think we've found that for the most uh, typical patients, probably three exercises about it. You know, once you go over three, the the rate of compliance or adherence just really really goes down. So I try to give them you know three primary ones. Unless there's someone who's pretty active, and then I know I can give them a little bit more. Um, or if I do give them more than three exercises, I let them know. Okay, push comes to shove. You don't have a lot of time. These are the three main ones, and then anything you do on top of that is is bonus. Um, so and I think there's been some literature that shows once it goes past three. It, it, the chance of them doing more than that goes goes down. 
So I want to make sure that I'm not overburdening them with uh, too much homework. Um, other things that I've found helpful is really helping them plan when and, and how they're going to do that. So there's a, a little sheet of paper that I kind of created um, that we go through, and it just has the patients answer these couple questions. Um, the first question being, you know, do you feel confident in your ability to do your exercises? Um, that is something that I hear very, very often uh, when patients come in uh, the second time or, the, or after I've seen them previously. They'll come in and they'll say, I don't know if I'm doing these exercises right, so I didn't do them at all. And so um, I found that question to be helpful first is before they leave, do you feel confident in how you do these exercises? And if they do, then we kind of go on to the next question and I ask them, well, where are you going to do these exercises? And I want them to think about it and you know, they'll say, oh, I'll do it when I get home. And to me, I, I kind of gently push them to be more specific. So say, you know, well, where in your home? Are, is this going to be your bedroom, your living room, the basement? You know, and then if they can drill down to the room, uh, I'll ask them, well, what time are you going to do these? Or when are you going to do these? And same idea, if they kind of give a general answer, like, oh, I'll do it after my daughter goes to bed. I'll say, well, what time is that? Or is there any chance of her getting out of that bed and coming back out? The hope is I can encourage them to really look at their their day and find when's the most reliable time to do it that's not going to get interrupted by anything else if it's appointments or or work um, and then once we've established that they feel confident they know where they're going to do it they know when they're going to do it the last question i'll ask them is so what other barriers do you think are going to get in your way and then we can kind of discuss those as they come up but i, I think um that seems to have been most helpful for me, especially when uh, patients are having a hard time finding ways to get into a, a good routine. Great advice. All right, so last question. What are some ways that doctors or patients can make your job easier and the treatment you know, turn out more satisfactory? Sure. I think um, from a physician perspective, I think... Um, empowering or encouraging maybe more reassurance to patients. Um, I, I think in, in an appropriate way. I would never want uh, another provider to lie to someone. But if it's something as simple as, hey, you know what? This knee hurts, but I went to therapy and it got better. I, I bet you this will get better too. I think even just the slightest little bit of uh, positive reassurance can, can go a long way. Um, you know, I think when a physician says something to a patient, that carries a lot of weight. Um, and so those, like you were saying, you know, those words are so powerful. Um, so if I could encourage that, I think that would start them off on the right track. Um, I used to work closely with a, a spine surgeon, and uh, she would call it the, the Jedi mind trick. And I didn't know she was doing this until <laughs> much, much later. But when she would send someone to therapy, she would tell them, she would say, now listen, this is going to hurt. You're not going to like it but you work with him or them, and it's going to get better. So they came in really expecting me to put them through it, and then my spiel was, hey, I think we can get this better in a comfortable way. Well, now they're relieved, and they're bought in. They expected the worst, and now they're getting a, a kind of a softer approach. Um, and so we had some good success with that. you know. And, and the, again, she was also reassuring, saying, hey, I do these exercises, so you better do them too. Um, I, I think that... That helped uh, quite a bit. Um, 
I think we kind of talked about the, the myths of, of low back pain. I think those can be something that we can try to avoid too, um, which, which I think most do, but we still hear, you know, some patients come in and say, oh, I, I had x-rays done and they say, I've got the knees of an 80 year old and I'm only 40. What does this mean? Do I have to have knee replacements? And, you know, I, I think we just want to be, again, careful with our, our words. Um, for patients, you know, I, I think it's probably simple. It's just try to do your exercise as best you can, you know. And um, even if you do them and they hurt, we want that feedback too um, because we need to know what works and what doesn't work. Um, I, I wish I could tell you it was always uh, perfectly laid out, but um, each person's program has to be customized. So sometimes we try something and then if it doesn't work, we try a different tweak and then that exercise seems to work. Um, so if a patient isn't doing those exercises, we don't really know if that approach was spot on or, or not. Um, I would also hope that patients kind of come in ready to, ready to talk about their pain and be able to express you know, what makes things better and what makes things worse, because those things really, really help us. Um, it is a challenge if, you know, when we ask a patient, you know, what, how does, you know, what's the worst thing for your back or what really sets it off? And they just say, I don't know. And so it's, it's a little bit hard. So, you know, we have this idea that when we get a generic history, we're going to give generic treatment and that tends not to be as successful. I see. Well, this has been very enlightening. I want to thank you so much, uh, Phil, for coming on the podcast and sharing your expertise with us. Oh, thanks for having me. I want to thank Dr. Phil Toll for enlightening us about low back pain and many other aspects of physical therapy. I want to thank you listeners for joining us on the podcast. And I'm very interested in your feedback. As always, reach out to me on Facebook, on Twitter or X at L. Davidson one on threads at L. Davidson on LinkedIn, uh, or just stop me in the hall and say, hey, I got an idea for you. I hope uh, you're enjoying the wonderful autumn weather. And uh, as always, stay healthy out there.